0: please turn once again in your copies of God's Word to the book of Ephesians. And we'll be considering this morning Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25 and continuing to verse 33. So last week, if you remember, we moved from the walking section of Ephesians to the household code section of Ephesians. Yet we also saw that The household code section of Ephesians was a continuation of the walking section. So if you remember going way back to that sermon on uh, the grammar of the Bible, we saw how there were commands which told us what to do, and then uh, participles which told us how to do it. And the last participle that we looked at in verse 21 was submitting to one another in the fear of God. Essentially, this household code section of Ephesians is basically unpacking what it means to submit to one another in all the areas and relationships of life where submission is called for. So, last week we saw the biblical command for wives to submit to their husbands. And I hope I showed to you that, uh, that what Paul gave us was not a formal logical proof, but rather a rhetorical means of persuading you of the rightness and goodness of biblical submission by looking at the way that the church submits to Christ. This week, I want us to consider the biblical command for husbands to love their wives. And as we do, I want us to realize uh, that not only biblical submission but actually the entire household code section of ephesians that we're going to be considering over the course of the next few weeks is under attack in this century and in the culture in which we live if you think about it we live in a culture where any kind of subordination is considered to be a form of oppression and therefore in the 19th and 20th centuries Uh, They have been full of movements for the liberation of women with the rise of modern feminism, the liberation of children with the statist impulse to take uh, children away from the authority of their parents, and the liberation of workers with uh, Marxism and socialism and even uh, welfare and unions. On the other side of the equation, on... Uh, those with authority biblical leadership of the husband is often uh, wrongly equated with toxic masculinity parents biblically disciplining their children is often wrongly equated with child abuse and employers who use their skills and talents to provide jobs for their workers are often viewed with suspicion or even contempt so as we come to this Household Code section of Ephesians, we really are coming to a hotly contested battleground. So then let us, as always, see what the word of the Lord says. Before we come to God's word read, let's once again ask for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we uh, do come before your word uh, with reverence. Acknowledging, Lord, that this is the inspired and fallible and authoritative word that was inspired by the Spirit through holy men of old. Lord, we uh, do not come to your word, above your word, putting ourselves, Lord, in authority over your word, judging your word. No, Lord, we come asking that you would judge us according to your word, that wherever we are out of step with your word, you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Father, as we come uh, to this particular passage, Paul uh, speaks of it as a great mystery. And even though in the scriptures the mystery often refers to that which has been revealed, we acknowledge that. This has been revealed, but it is also uh, in many ways mysterious and difficult uh, to understand fully all that is meant uh, by this analogy between human marriage and the marriage between Christ and the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would give us eyes and ears to hear it. We pray that you would cause our hearts to long for all that this scripture holds forth to us uh, in wonderful promises for your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's holy word, Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church nevertheless let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband amen and thus far the reading of god's perfect word last week we considered the command for wives to submit to their husbands and we might expect therefore that the command for husbands would be something like this husbands lead your wives However, what Paul actually says in verse 25 is this, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And what this tells us is not that Paul doesn't think that husbands should lead their wives, he certainly does believe that. We see that, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the qualifications for elders and deacons. Rather, what this is telling us is that Paul wants the husband to lead in a way that makes it easy or at least easier for the wife to submit because everything the husband does should be done in love for her. And it's interesting that we see this same priority in each of the relationships in this household code section of Ephesians. For example, the first thing he says to fathers in Ephesians 6.1 is not, fathers, discipline your children. He gets to that eventually. But he begins, and you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. And Likewise, the first thing he says to masters in Ephesians 6.9 is, and you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening So we see that in each one of these relationships, Paul has a particular care that the one given authority by God would use his authority in a way that looks out for the interests of the other. And I wonder if perhaps part of our hesitancy about the idea of submission comes from the fear we have that the authority will be abused. And perhaps that natural fear of the biblical notion of submission would be alleviated if we realized that biblical submission was intended to be willingly yielded in a context of a covenanted relationship where the husband promises to love his wife and to seek her good above all else. So biblically speaking, loving Comes first and leading follows naturally as an expression of that love because of the particular role which God has ordained for the husband. And in fact, we also see this even uh, in the English speaking world in our traditional wedding vows. If you think about it, our traditional wedding vows uh, don't mention leading, but they do mention loving. Leading is implied, but loving comes first. So here in the RPCNA, the husband's marriage vow goes something like this. I, his name, take you, her name, to be my lawfully wedded wife and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. You're covenanting first and foremost to love your wife. And so too here, the overarching command for husbands in Ephesians 5 is for them to love their wives. And once again, Paul is going to base this command on the similarity between earthly marriage between a husband and a wife and the a heavenly marriage between Christ and the church. The only difference that we see is that in the section on wives submitting to their husbands, Paul is going to make use of the headship aspect of marriage. But in this section on husbands loving their wives, he's going to go even further and explore even deeper realities of marriage. And so as we consider this similarity between the earthly marriage between a husband and a wife and the heavenly marriage between Christ and the church. Logically, there are two uh, ways that we can take this and make use of it for the good of our souls. First, we could begin with the heavenly marriage between Christ and the church and then learn from that how husbands, earthly husbands ought to love their wives. And second, we can begin with the earthly marriage between a husband and a wife and learn from that more about what the love that Christ has for the church looks like. And as we look at our text today, this is exactly the approach that Paul takes. In verses 25 through 27, Paul takes the example of Christ and he applies it to human marriage. And then in verses 28 through 33, he takes what we know of human marriage and he takes that and he applies it to Christ. So I want to go through this argument of Paul uh, today in the time that we have this morning. So first, we see that beginning with the love that Christ has for the church, we can learn that husbands should love their wives sacrificially. And again, we see that in verses 25 through 27. Notice what Paul says. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And the first thing that we uh, can see from this verse that is readily apparent in the Greek but is perhaps uh, less obvious in the English is that The love that Paul commands in Christian marriage is agape love. Most of you probably know that uh, the Greek language has three words for love. First, eros love is sensual or passionate love. It's the love of the flesh. And the ancient world knew very well that all marriage involves the physical attraction or eros love this is often what we speak when we speak of falling in love and you can be sure that young men and young women in biblical times fell in love just as much as they do today but next in the greek language there's also philos love which is devoted or loyal love and this is the love of fondness and it was actually the greek stoic philosophers who taught that in addition to eros love, marriage should also involve fondness and companionship, or philos love. And we agree that both of these loves are important in a healthy marriage. But the Apostle Paul went further than anyone else in the ancient world and said that marriage should also involve the highest form of love imaginable, which is deliberate, intentional, sacrificial self-giving and other exalting love or agape love and paul says that not only is this the love that husbands should have for their wives but this is also the love that christ has for the church he says husbands love your wives agape love your wives just as christ also agape loved the church and gave himself for her And the fact that Jesus was willing to give himself up for his wife is significant because the agape love that Paul is describing that is even willing to die for the other person is closely connected with the idea of covenant love. In the Hebrew, in the ancient world, the word uh, which means to make a covenant is the word which uh, literally means to cut a covenant In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham to be a God to him and to his descendants after him. And then we find that he sealed that covenant in uh, what is known as a covenant cutting ceremony in Genesis chapter 15. And in that covenant cutting cutting ceremony, Abraham took five animals, a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And the larger animals he cut in half and placed each half opposite the other in order to form an aisle through the carcasses in which those making the covenant would walk. And it was commonly understood that to walk through that uh, the aisle formed by those cut animals was essentially taking on a self-maledictory oath and saying, if I break this covenant, let me become like these animals. What's even more interesting, however, is that during this covenant-cutting ceremony, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram, and it was only the Lord who walked through these animal halves, essentially communicating that the Lord himself would take on all the obligations of the covenant to fulfill his word to Abraham. Abraham on pain of death and this is what it means that the gospel comes to us as a covenant of grace the Lord takes upon himself all the obligations of the covenant and the only condition he requires of you is to believe in what he has done but this covenant cutting ceremony also means that Christ's covenant love by definition is a love that is willing to die for you rather than to break his word to fulfill his promise to save his people. He would rather die in order to save his people than not dying be brought under his self-maledictory curse for failing to save them. And so as we uh, turn our attention back to marriage, what is marriage except a covenant in which you take upon yourself a similar self-maledictory oath, let me die before I am ever unfaithful to you, till death do us part. So husbands, you are called to agape love your wives with a sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying covenant love, that should be willing even to die for your wife. I think it goes without saying that you should love your wife so much that you would be willing to physically die for her to defend her. But in addition, you should also be willing to die to yourself and to your own self-interest within your marriage as you learn to put her interests and her preferences above your own. And therefore, when you define uh, the love that God requires for husbands in that way, well, then the command for husbands to love their wives actually becomes very similar to the command for wives to submit to their husbands. Speaking of these two controlling words, to submit and to love, John Stott writes this. He says, Yet when we try to define the two verbs, it is not easy to distinguish clearly between them. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up for somebody, as Christ gave himself up for the church. Thus, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely of that selfless, self-giving which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. In other words, we don't believe, or I don't believe, that the Bible teaches mutual submission because submission has a very specific meaning. And the Bible is clear that the husband has a headship or authority over his wife. Yet even though there is not mutual submission, there is a mutual humility and a mutual other-centeredness, which will mean that the husband should lead in a way that actually looks out for his wife's best interests and should care for her concerns. So what does it mean then for uh, the, uh, the church, for Christ to love the church self-sacrificially and in a way that looks out for the best interests of his bride? Well, reading from verses 25 through 27, we see something of an order of salvation. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I want you to notice a few things from these verses and from this order of salvation that Paul lays out before us. First I want you to see that Jesus didn't love us because we were lovely or beautiful but he loved us and died for us before we were beautiful. Now this is where the analogy with our marriages breaks down slightly because this is talking about the period of betrothal or engagement and we are certainly not saying that our wives are not beautiful as they walk down the aisle as the bride prepared for her bridegroom yet the principle is still valid that even in marriage love comes first as the driving motivation for all that we do and feel in marriage and not how beautiful we feel or do not feel our wives-to-be. There will be days, husbands, where you are absolutely smitten for your wife and think she is the most beautiful thing in the world. There will be other days that are clouded either by her sin or yours, yet we as husbands don't base our love on our apprehension of our wife's beauty but on an unswerving commitment to them to love them with this deliberate and intentional agape love. Friends, this is exactly how the Lord looks on you, beloved. The Lord loves you as a matter of first principle. He sets his sovereign love upon you before you did anything good or bad. And if you have received Christ and have faith that Jesus died for your sins, you can rest in that love. The same thing applies to earthly wives as well. If you have any kind of a faithful husband, you can rest in his love. You can grow in trusting that he loves you. But friends, this is the case especially with our heavenly bridegroom. Friends, his love for you is not dependent on your good days and your bad days, but it is a constant and complete and perfect love. And therefore, you can have co- complete assurance that Christ loves you. But second, I want you to notice that even though Jesus didn't love you because you were beautiful, I want you to notice uh, that Jesus loved you and died for you in order to make you beautiful and accepted in the sight of god we see that in verses 26 and 27 paul says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word speaking of our justification and sanctification and then verse 27 that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish speaking of our final glorification now once again these are all actions that are all specific to christ and to what he does these are all things that christ does for his people and yet if we were to apply the same principle to our marriage i think the principle is this part of loving our wives and seeking their good is to seek their spiritual growth and well-being And so husbands, one thing you need to be doing is leading your wives spiritually and seeking their spiritual well-being. And one of the ways you can do this is by leading your families in daily family worship. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. As in private families daily, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. If you're not convinced that uh, daily family worship is a scriptural command. I encourage you to look up this chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 21, paragraph 6, and read and study the scriptural references that they give in the footnotes. They're fascinating, and I think you will come away convinced that this is a duty to have daily family worship. And as I say that, uh, family worship doesn't need to be much with our children, the ages they are right now. We try to keep it simple with just a psalm or two, a Bible reading, and a brief time of prayer. But it is important, uh, husbands, especially husbands and fathers, to make family worship a priority. But next, husbands, you can be praying with and for your wife. You can be having spiritual conversations with your wife. You can remind your wife continually of the glories of the gospel. You can be having a concern for good doctrine and good spiritual influences and protecting her from bad doctrine and being ready to refute it. Not to mention, you should always be modeling confession and forgiveness and godliness in your own private walk. So we see that jesus's purpose and everything he did was to make us into a radiant church and that should be our priority for our spouses as well to see them safely to heaven so to recap paul takes the example of christ and he applies it to human marriage and he tells us that beginning with the love that christ has for the church we can learn that Husbands should love their wives sacrificially. But next, Paul is going to go in reverse and beginning with what we know of human marriage. We're going to learn that Christ loves the church as his own body in verses 28 through 33. Paul says in verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, at first, this might seem like a contradiction to what we said earlier. Because earlier we talked about love being other-centered and self-sacrificial and seeking the other's good. But here we see that marriage so unites a husband and a wife that they become one flesh, and therefore to seek the good of your spouse is to seek the good of yourself. And therefore, some people want to say that Paul begins with this higher argument for selfless, other-centered love. And then he adds on an argument based on selfish and self-interested love. Basically, that if you want to be happy, make her happy because now you're stuck together in marriage and you can't really get away. And we've all heard people say things like this, happy wife, happy life. You make her happy, she'll make you happy. But friends, that's really not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is not giving you an argument for loving your wife that is based on self-interest. Rather, he's saying that because of the radical nature of the one-fleshed union of the marriage bond, you should actually begin to think of your wife as an extension of yourself and therefore to seek her good as if it were your own good. So when Paul says, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he means husbands ought to love their wives as if they were their own bodies, not as much as they love their own bodies or in order to love their own bodies. And this is confirmed by what Paul adds at the end of verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. And this is significant because Jesus can say to everyone in the great commandment, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you shall love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. But only to husbands can the Bible say, you shall love your wife as a part of yourself. Friends, such is the wonder of the marriage relationship. So what does it look like to love your wife as your own body? Paul says in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And I think if only husbands and wives, but especially husbands, could truly understand this verse, it would eliminate so much conflict in marriage. Friends, if you are married to your wife, she is now a part of you for better or worse. And therefore, how can you despise the wife of your youth? How could you ever look upon your own wife with contempt? If you are playing some kind of a sport and you hit the ball and it goes in a direction that you didn't want, would you get angry at your own limbs? Or if you were working on a car and a bolt came loose and became lost in the engine, would you get angry at your own hand? No, you assume that your hand was doing the best that it could, or you take responsibility and say you could have been more careful. But you would never hate your hand because it's a part of you. Its failure is your failure. Its pain is your pain. And therefore, husbands whose wife is an extension of you. You should never look on your wife as the enemy, but rather you should see that both you and her have a common enemy, which is sin, which is perpetually seeking to destroy your marriage. Therefore, instead of seeing your wife as the enemy, you need to see sin as the enemy and make use of God's methods of dealing with sin by confessing And forgiving sin. Or to take another example, if your stomach was hungry or thirsty, do you get angry at your stomach for being so needy? No, you realize that if your stomach is empty, it's going to grumble and you try to meet its needs. Now, I'm not condoning grumbling. I'm simply saying that instead of getting frustrated when our wives need more from us, we should be trying to meet their legitimate needs and recognize, I have been neglecting you. I want to do a better job of nourishing and cherishing you. But as wonderful as that is, that in human marriage, two people are joined together so closely that the Bible speaks of them as being one flesh. What's even more amazing is that this unity is also a picture of the unity that Christ shares with the church. So at the end of verse 29, Paul says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And friends, as we come to this verse, this is a profound thought. Because we already know that if we truly belong to Christ, then we know that God the Father loves us just as if we were his only beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we see in Ephesians 5 an equally magnificent truth, an equally comforting truth to the soul, which is that because of our union with Christ, Christ as the perfect husband also loves us as if we were a part of himself. Therefore, beloved, you can have confidence both in God the Father's love and in Christ the Son's unfailing love toward you. So in the next two verses, in verses 30 and 31, Paul is going to give us two realities of human marriage that are going uh, to demonstrate this profound truth about the unity that Christ shares with the church, which can make it so Christ can say that he loves us as his own body. And the first reality of human marriage That Paul draws our attention to is in verse 30. Paul says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now if you're not using the King James Version or the New King James Version, you probably don't have the second half of that verse. And I've already taken the time at least once this past year to explain why that is, but briefly it's not because the translators are translating the same Greek words and deciding to translate them slightly differently. Rather, it's because the translators are looking at different Greek words. So the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on what is known as the received text, which is the text uh, that was copied and multiplied and used in the church uh, through many centuries. And then uh, this was the most numerous and uniform text that we had at the time of the Reformation when uh, the printing press um, basically codified it at the time of the Reformation. So this is what the King James Version and the New King James Version are based off of. The ESV, the NIV, and virtually all other modern translations, on the other hand, are based um, off of what is known as the critical text, which gives a much greater weight to two manuscripts, discovered in the 1800s and i've already explained why i think it's safe to trust the received text because it is the product of the spirit working in the church throughout the generations and through providence and on the other hand i i also think that we can view with suspicion a small handful of manuscripts that were only recently d- discovered which do not agree with the vast majority of manuscripts. So I believe that these uh, words are the inspired words of God, that we can trust them. And so having established that these are the inspired words of Scripture, what does it mean then that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones? Well, this is clearly a reference to Genesis 2, 23, where God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he took one of Adam's ribs and made the rib into, into a woman. And when Adam awoke, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here in Ephesians 5, Paul is saying that just like Eve was formed from Adam and presented to Adam, so too the church was formed from Christ and presented back to Christ. And therefore Christ loves us because we came from him. So we have a unity with Christ first by virtue of the fact that we owe our origin to him. He gave us not just his rib but his whole body that we might become a new creation united to Christ and renewed after the image of Christ and so that Christ might be formed in us. But not only does the creation of Eve from Adam's rib point to that unity between Christ and the church but so too does the marital union between the husband and the wife so we see in verse 31 Paul is going to quote the next verse in Genesis Genesis 2 verse 24 which says for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God so designed marriage that the husband and the wife come together in a conjugal union that is so close and intimate that the Bible speaks of husband and wife as becoming one flesh. And the remarkable thing is that even this intimate physical union between a husband and a wife is a picture of the spiritual union between Christ and the church. And it looks forward to the day that we refer to as the consummation, which is the fuller picture of what marriage is only the dim reflection. In Revelation 21, John says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. nor uh, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So both by virtue of our having our origin in the broken body of Christ, and also by virtue of our looking forward to the future marriage supper of the Lamb, We can look at our human marriages and say whatever sense of union and oneness I share with my wife, I know that the union and oneness that I share with my Savior is greater. And as much as marriage is a rich blessing which brings great joy, the marriage between Christ and the church is an even richer blessing which will bring an even more unimaginable joy. Paul says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then he wraps the whole thing up and brings us back down to earth in verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, as we conclude, I want to end by applying what we've learned to ourselves. The believer is the one who says with David, search me and know my heart. Try try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So first, husbands, as you look at what this means for your earthly marriages, can you truly say that you love your wife sacrificially? just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you think back to the last argument that you had with your wife, can you truly say that you were loving her as Christ loves the church? Were you patient in bearing with her weakness as Christ is with the church? Were you quick to lay aside your own hurts and to forgive her as Christ is with the church? Or was it partly your own pride and selfishness selfishness that led to the argument? And husbands, as you lead your wife, are you giving up your rights and your prerogatives and instead desiring her, her good as if it were your own good? When you make decisions, are you truly weighing her concerns equally with your own? Can she trust you to lead her with her best interests in mind? And husband, since her ultimate good is to grow spiritually in her walk with the Lord, are you creating an environment in your home where she can thrive spiritually? To that end, are you growing in your own walk with the Lord so that you can encourage her walk with the Lord, not in a heavy-handed way, but gently and patiently, just as Christ deals with us But second, as we look at what this means for our heavenly marriage to Christ, do you understand experientially everything that I'm saying about the love that Christ has for the church being like marriage? Do you understand experientially that God is not just a God far off, but a God who desires intimate communion and fellowship with his people And friend, have you been betrothed to the Lord? We all know that engaged couples generally spend a lot of time thinking about and looking forward to their wedding. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about and looking forward to with great anticipation that day when you will walk down the aisle, as it were, and enjoy free and unbridled and perfect communion with your Creator? and redeemer jesus christ friend if you don't have this knowledge of the love of christ for you as a heavenly bridegroom know that the wedding has not yet taken place the invitations are still being sent and the savior's bride the church has not yet reached her complete number and therefore i invite you to come Confess your own unworthiness to appear before so great a Savior and a husband. And yet believe, friend, that all who come to him confessing their sins, he will by no means cast out. But he will receive you into his loving arms, and he will love you with an everlasting arm. Sorry, he will love you with an everlasting love. And as Isaiah promised to Israel of old, so he promises to you. From Isaiah 62, verse 4, You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this amazing gift of marriage, both human marriage, but also that it points beyond human marriage to the love between Christ and his bride, the church. Lord, may we, as we walk uh, this journey of life, may we be continually more and more focused and excited and interested and desirous of that day when Jesus Christ will be revealed and we will be drawn up to her and we will be with her forever. Lord, even now, we pray that we would enjoy a foretaste of that fellowship for we are one with Christ and yet we look forward to the day when that fellowship will be complete And we will see not with the eyes of faith, but with the eyes of sight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.